There's a Reddit thread asking interviewers to share the most ridiculous thing they've seen on a resume. First one on the list. None of my references really like me, so please don't believe what they say. How about someone that actually wrote on their resume their their email address, which was 420bluntbro at gmail.com. Somebody had petroleum transfer specialist at British Petroleum on their resume, which really just meant he pumped gas at the BP station. Under certifications, a guy put badass. Nice. Somebody else apparently thought it'd be a good idea to put their 2.0 GPA on a resume. The question was on the on the interview, have you been convicted of a felony? If yes, please explain. And he wrote, yes, arson, but he really deserved it. I'll discuss it in the interview. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. All right, welcome to episode number one. 63 of Touchpoint coming to you live from the Coronavirus Task Force Center. <laughs> Not really. Could be. I don't know. I mean, by the time you listen to this, maybe we are in some sort of a hot spot. But in any case, uh, welcome to episode 163. By that reference, you know, if you're listening to this a year from now, when we recorded it. That is Chris Boyer, and I'm Reed Smith. Hey, Reed, I was thinking about the one uh, job that is pretty safe for you and I is podcasting because we've been working from home back before working from home was actually a normality of our life. Like a lot of companies uh, where I work is giving people the option or highly encouraging them to to work from home and not going to be that hard for me. I'm used to doing it. Not at all. Not at all. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. And if you were working from home, just uh, put on Touchpoint on repeat. If you'd like to check out some of the other shows on the network, you can find out what those are, more about them, the show host, topics, all that fun stuff over at touchpoint.health. You can listen to it there on the website. You can actually navigate out to uh, Apple Podcasts, maybe even stream it on Spotify, whatever works for you. We certainly appreciate the support. Rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker over Slack because, again, you're working remotely. We do appreciate the support. And before we jump into today's show, which is going to be a fun one, uh, we're going to take a quick pause for this brief message and we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. 
So we're recording this in mid-March of 2020, which is the time when everything's sort of shifting. And and as we talk about this today, Reed, we know that people are looking online very actively right now around health searches. I think it's actually probably increased over the last couple of weeks in the U.S., given what's going on in our society. Clearly. And the reason we, and just to give a little bit of context on why Chris said that we're recording this in mid-March 2020, we still have people that listen to shows from three years ago. I don't know why or why you would do that. But in any case, we just wanted to specify specifically when we were when we were recording this. But yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting ways, you know, people search. We've talked a lot about this. Certainly there's the medical condition or symptom-based search, which obviously we're seeing a lot of right now with COVID-19 slash coronavirus type searches, I'm sure. And then often, you know, in our other years, we found that people search by location because they're trying to find like a, a clinic or an urgent care center or someplace that's convenient or close to them. That's another way they look. And then the, the third way they really search is around particularly a doctor, either by their specialty type or by their actual name themselves, right? And we find that to be a big way that people kind of search for care. If you look at the three different ways people generally search for care. Those are the the main three buckets, if we could categorize it that way. The topical or the actual profession itself, the doctor, the doctor's name, et cetera. And then what we've talked about is like near me type searches and stuff like that. So you can kind of bucket those that way. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the modern CV. We'll get into that here in just a second, specifically for doctors, but maybe just kind of for everybody to some extent, how that's changing in this day and age. And really what that means uh, when we think about patients effectively interviewing new doctors as part of their care team. Yeah, interviewing quotes, right? Because now with the digital age upon us, a lot of people are pre-screening or interviewing, quote unquote, people or locations or brands or whatever prior to even interacting with them. And that's a big shift in the way things are happening in this space. The first place we wanted to start was was talk about this whole concept of the CV or the curriculum vitae. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And how that actually has evolved. Because when you think about the idea of a CV or even a resume, as some people call it, that is something that's actually been around for a number of years. Just a few. Uh, they talk about way back, this is just a little before I was born, but in 1482, it's a long time ago. Da Vinci, might have heard of him, uh, completed a written document outlining his skills and submitted it to the Duke of Milan, who was in search of military engineers. Wow. That document actually still exists. You can actually link to it and look at it online. But if you think about that, 1482 is the very first time that a quote-unquote resume was found in our history and the history of written human experience, which is really fascinating. We're referring, by the way, to an article called The History of the CV in Five Stages. The second stage was in the medieval time, and there were these things called medieval portfolios. So the article outlines that throughout the Middle Ages, there are examples of artists and inventors who provided portfolios to showcase their personal style. They could have been in the form of like sketchbooks or a variety of different designs or even examples of their work. And a great example that they have is a portfolio by Villard del Hanacourt, who uh, dates from the beginning of the 13th century and included sketches of architecture, nature, mechanisms, just generally how he thinks. So imagine your modern day sketchbook was your resume at the time. 
it probably was a little bit still, even when I was in school, if you think about people with certain majors, right, they had portfolios they would show as part of their work history or, or opportunity. We then moved to the third phase here, which is the 20th century. So this is hilarious because number one, you couldn't do this now and you would not recognize CVs from say like the 40s because they had things on there that were pretty common, like your age, height, weight, marital status, which is nothing you would put on. I don't know. Maybe I'll add that to mine, like height and weight. It's like a baseball card. <laughs> and then asking for religion and marital status you know, would sometimes occur, in, although they weren't supposed to take it into account during the recruitment process. But it wasn't until they said it wasn't until the 60s, 1960s, that it became popular to include sections like hobbies or interests. Uh, even then, it was still likely that a job advertisement would include, this is hilarious, it's illegal, you can do this now, but the actual job advertisement would include a desired gender and age of the applicant. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, I mean, we think about that in today's world and then just like, sh- we shudder to think what, you know, what the implications of that, because obviously things have changed. Social norms have changed. That's, we started to eliminate age discrimination, gender discrimination, etc. particularly here in the U.S. That may happen to a lesser extent, maybe even covertly during the interview process through face-to-face, but your resume itself doesn't really indicate those things. Really, the next big advent of change occurred when the internet came on board. You know, the World Wide Web went live in 1994, and read at that very same time, Monster.com was created. Can you believe that? Uh, and where, why Monster.com? I probably should know this, or somebody should look it up, or if you know it, tweet it to me or something, but they just chose Monster.com? Because at the time, you feel like you could have gotten just about any URL uh, in 1994, but in any case, it's a long time ago. Flash forward a couple of years, nine years later in 2003, that's when LinkedIn was launched. And a lot of times today, when you think about the modern CV, the online CV, you compare it a lot to what LinkedIn is. And we talked about it just briefly in last week's uh, interview. Through the interview, we were talking about how blockchain could potentially could be the new place where the CV would be. Well, I guess that would be phase five here. But the internet has offered so many new opportunities, but also so many new challenges of the way you present your online presence. And now, if you think back about, like even going back to what Da Vinci did in 1482 about submitting an outline of skills and resumes, and then in the medieval times, the internet has created all of these opportunities now where a doctor's or medical professionals online CV potentially could be. Much like, this is very analogous, at least in my mind, to the way we think about communications uh, as hospitals. We've talked about, well, historically, if you wanted to know something, uh, or if if we wanted you to know something, we were just going to tell you. There was no way, there was no back and forth. There was no way for people out there, wherever there is, to ask things, communicate, create their own. Well, it's very similar now to with CVs. Before it was like, well, we selectively put on this CV or resume, maybe what we wanted you to know. Well, now people can find out much more than what you put on that sheet of paper or digital sheet of paper than we have historically been able to. And even now, though, we're starting to kind of see how all of these online places where you can start to track information about people can be used as a way to help make selections when that person, that doctor, 
that healthcare professional, that even that hospital or health system is being selected. So think about things like your own personal website. Think about, you know, your find the doctor profiles on hospital web pages or insurance web pages, third party websites, blog posts, and your Twitter account, your overall online footprint. So online reputation is being an is being changed dramatically. Why do you think that? I mean, is is it purely from a technology standpoint? I think that technology will actually actually provides us transparency into what people can do. It's similar to hearing, you know, like when people are interviewing people and for jobs, they look at their Facebook profiles and they look at their Twitter accounts just to get a sense of who they are. It's all out there now. Our digital footprint is just increasing, isn't it? It is. So the funny aside about that is I don't know that legally, if you're a hiring manager or organization, you can look at people's social profiles because you could potentially see something, a protected piece of information like religion or race or or whatever. I don't know. That could be construed, I guess, that they did or didn't get the job because of something you saw. But so it sprung up a whole nother industry, which is people that go do those social background checks and then filter out the stuff that you're not allowed to see. I guess the technology has ultimately fueled the ability to be able to see more information, but not necessarily changed the motivation, maybe. Let's hit a couple of stats before we actually drill into what the impact of all this information can have into people's trust about doctors online. But one of the studies, uh, we there's a lot of stats we can pull out, read. There's studies all the time about this. Hitwise did a survey where they found that 68% of consumers start their mobile health research with a search engine. And they use this data point when making decisions on doctors. They are looking, and 68% of consumers, when they're looking for their doctor, will go to Google and type in that doctor's name or even the specialty. That's a big part of search. I think that it could probably be even be higher, don't you think? I think so. And it probably is. It probably is higher at this point, especially if you include like branded search and stuff like that. Uh, Another big one is reviews. Uh, We've talked a lot about reviews and review management and kind of what that means for both brick and mortar healthcare providers as well as physicians. But patients put a lot of trust in, into these reviews and opinions from other patients, especially when choosing doctors and in everything else in their life for that matter, but especially when choosing doctors. And so talks about that there's 77% of consumers use online reviews as a first step, a first step when finding a new physician. So that could be on things like Google My Business or the Google Profiles website managed by provider practices. And so you, you start meshing in other things like health grades or vitals or U.S. News and World Report, you know, different places where you can see that star rating of a physician. And then lastly, social media. They obviously are measuring this, where what that impact is. 74% of internet users engage on social media. of those people are specifically looking for health information and nearly half are searching for information about a specific doctor or professional on social media. And that's according to Pew Research. These are important areas where there's a digital footprint for doctors. And that's not to mention all the news mentions and third-party mentions like your doctors in, you know, a news story, or maybe they're quoted by the local media or what have you. Those are also contributing to it. And that's hard to measure. Well, it's a lot like, you know, if you went to school and and you were major in architecture or some sort of design, you know, or art where you have an actual portfolio. Well, this is your portfolio. You know, that talking head of you uh, on, you know, Fox 7 on the local channel or whatever, you know, about 
the flu season on what you said on Twitter over a period of time, participating in tweet chats or otherwise, then the reviews and all that, all that gets coupled together. It's not just about where you went to school and what your board certified in. All that's important, but somewhat expected. And all this other gives color to, you know, realistically who you are and how you practice. And it, it does potentially impact the way we as consumers, patients, whatever, start to trust our physicians. So after the break, why don't we jump back to a survey, a different survey by Pew that actually cast an interesting light about trust in physicians and do Americans trust physicians? We'll be right back. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Let's jump back in here and and talk about, well, we're really going to center this around a a particular survey, but the article that we're going to reference and actually link to in the the show notes is from medicaleconomics.com. Wow, medical economics. It's really about a Pew survey in talking about how and do Americans trust physicians. It highlights a couple of high-level points, and the article itself links to the deeper Pew survey, which also is a little bit fascinating, but we're going to hit the high levels here and talk about them. And again, in the context of when you're thinking about your online representation as a healthcare professional, how this might potentially impact that. So one of the first stats they say is that 74% of Americans have a positive view of their doctors. That feels good to me. I think that doctors still hold a high level of trust. And the way this survey stuff is broken down, it's like mostly positive, neither mostly negative, you know, or all time, sometime, none of the time. So there's three or four categories you can choose from in most of these. So 74 is a pretty big number. And I think in that same scale, the neutral was about 18. And so the the negative number was was less, it's like eight, you know, it's less than 10. So that's pretty good. Also, 57% of those uh, surveyed believe doctors care about their patient interests. That feels like it's getting a little low. I think also in that number, you know, there's a sum of the time they care, you know, which is like 33%. So again, the negative number is is still pretty good. It's less than 10. But um, I feel like they're really only a little over half. I only think that they only care half the time. I mean, all of the time, right? Or all or most of the time is I think the nuance here, right? I think that that's... I would say that's probably general about, I don't know, personally, I would say that in generally, I think I could feel the same way about just trusting people in general. I think that, you know, in general, maybe 60% of people, I all or most of the time are acting in our best interest, right? But then the numbers change even further. It starts to trend even further down. The next question is around doctors providing accurate information and good recommendations. So let's, let's break those down a little quickly here, Reed. Doctors providing good recommendations. Again, all or most of the time, it's 49%. Now it's dropped below 50%. 
So good recommendations all or most of the time. Some of the time is 42%. So now all and some are starting to align closer. Only a little or none of the time is still under 10%. And by the way, those numbers are pretty much reflective also of the same corollary question of do doctors provide fair and accurate information? All or some most of the time is 48, some is 43, and only a little is only 9%. So that feels pretty good. Well, I mean, the good news there is if you take the negativity piece of everything we've talked about up to this point, the overall view all the way down to this most recent, you know, fair and accurate and the recommendation stuff, everything's under 10, right, on the negative side of the scale. So then we're really just getting down to all of the time or some of the time. So, yeah, I mean, okay, like I, I still feel pretty encouraged here. I think as we continue down this list of these like high level numbers, uh, you know, are they transparent about conflicts of interest, uh, admit mistakes and take responsibility, problem of professional misconduct and face serious consequences for misconduct, then all the numbers start to shift pretty dramatically. And so this is where I think it, it's interesting that, you know, while we still have a very, uh, an overall uh, very positive or, um, view of medical doctors, there are some areas, will they face serious consequences for misconduct? Well, only 20% uh, say all or most of the time, some of the time 50%, little to none of the time 30%. Is there a problem of professional misconduct? There's a very big problem, 15 uh, a moderate problem, 35, small, 44, not a problem, five. So that's that's pretty good, right? I mean, there's half the people say that there's there's really no problem to speak of around misconduct. But the ability you know, to admit mistakes, I think this is where I think the, the access to information has impacted the way that we view feedback from physicians. So are they transparent about conflicts of interest? And are they willing to admit to their mistakes and take responsibility? That's where we start saying, well, no, you know, most of the time, you know, it's a pretty small number. And then we get down to the uh, only a little or none of the time we're in the 30s and 40 percent on those. That's crazy. And this is where, you know, the stakes are getting higher. And again, access to all this information, it does certainly play a role in how people start to view physicians and their role in, in our trust of administering health. One of the most fascinating things and probably a controversial result that they found is the Pew Research pulled out this, that younger minority Americans have less trust in physicians. Here's what they found. Younger participants, Blacks and Hispanics, believe that doctors only provide accurate treatment 42% of the time. And 71% of Blacks and 63% of Hispanics express levels of concern over their misconduct and 43% of whites saw professional misconduct as a problem. One of the quotes that Pew actually calls out in this survey is that long-standing concerns about inequalities in health outcomes for Blacks, Hispanics, as compared with whites, could really be playing a role in these perceptions. That's kind of interesting to me. That is interesting. Let's shift gears just a little bit here and... Talk about how to write an actual CV, you know, what should be on there? Because we're talking about other things that influence the way people find us, think about us, et cetera. Now, this is specific to physicians, uh, but it comes from Kevin MD, which obviously is a very popular site, uh, physician focused or clinically focused site, I should say, not just physician focused. 
And this article, appropriately titled How to Write a Physician's CV, is a uh, uh, it's a year old, but I, I still think this is a great um, kind of list, if you will. And so we can kind of go through this. There's a few things that uh, they talk about in kind of broad categories. So obviously there's contact information and things like that up at the top. You know, I'm not, we're not going to get into all that, but there's things that you would expect like education, right? Where'd you go to school, location, degree, graduation dates. That's pretty straightforward, right? Any sort of academic honors, activities, leadership positions. So this is kind of the stuff that happened while you were at school. You know, we think about more probably like an undergrad. Practice experience, specialty area, all of these things are kind of the standard things that we see. If we go to any find a doctor profile, that should be listed there. You know, medical professional memberships, licensure or board certification. I think that that's really important. Um, and then we get into things that are a little bit not always in an online CV, but probably should be. So things like, where were you published? What were some of the presentations you gave? I see more and more health systems starting to connect to those links, you know, adding links to their profile. So people can learn a little bit more about that doctor's role in that in their field, in their practice of I think so. And this makes me think a lot about, and I'm calling it audible here just a little bit in, in our live recording. But if you think about the evolution of LinkedIn, we've mentioned LinkedIn earlier, you know, early on, it really was just an online resume. And it really was just, here's who I am. You could put in kind of a little blurb, right? Like a little bio statement, if you will. And then it was just kind of the chronological, reverse chronological order list of where you worked. And what's your title and that, you know, the dates and stuff like that. So a lot, not terribly uncommon from a resume or CV. And so I think just like what they're talking about here, research that you've done, like you mentioned, Chris, the, the publications, presentations, memberships, you know, those types of things, uh, professional awards and honors, language skills, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's also a place for that on LinkedIn. I mean, there's ways to, you can go into you know, one of those entries and put in their resources and links of things that you've done to show, you know, it's not just a list of like what I say I did, like you're linking to actual proof. As you start to think about this, right, we, we've been talking about as like your online CV as being for employment purposes. And I think that's an important distinction here. But when you talk about customers or patients, interviewing quote unquote doctors through their online CV, then you have to start in adding other things. And so, you know, that's where we get into uh, information about your your medical philosophy or your statement of, of how you're actually administering care. Maybe your, your personal interests play a role here. Maybe people that are sports enthusiasts want to go to a uh, sports medicine doctor who's also a triathlete or whatever, because they can kind of start to understand them, right? So now these things are becoming more of the softer skills that become an important place in your online reputation as well. People are becoming more and more concerned with uh, kind of the cultural fit of a lot of this. Let's say you're expecting multiples, right? So you're, you're high risk for whatever reason, or maybe it's a advanced age or what, whatever it is, but you're going to go to an MFM physician or something like that. Like you want to know about them. You just mentioned the, you know, the idea of the triathlete, right? So if you, if you're a pretty active young professional, you know, maybe you want to like start getting in and getting a routine down with a healthcare professional, annual visits, things like that. Well, you want somebody that understands your lifestyle and what you're doing. And so that's why I think a lot of this really plays into ultimately, you know, how you acquire patients over time. 
The other aspects of your digital footprint, though, also play an important role. And now we're getting into things that are not listed on your official CV, but as our interview that we're going to toss to you in just a moment here, Auden Utengen from Simpler, his organization is starting to look at the physician social media impact on their online reputation. And in fact, they are in the interview, we're going to be talking about one of the new tools that they released, where you can actually measure the impact that your social media has on your online CV from a professional setting, and also from a way that you can actually reach out to potential customers, patients that are looking for your care. So why don't we go to that interview now, Reed, and listen to hear what they are doing over there at uh, Simpler. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast. And today I am actually really happy to be talking to someone who I've been very familiar with your company for a number of years. That is Auden Utengen. Auden, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's an honor to be here. I'm excited that you're here too, because you are the CEO of Simpler. And a lot of people listening in may know, may be familiar with Simpler from the Simpler hashtag project, particularly if you go to conferences. We use that a lot to, you know, kind of report out on the, the success of the conferences. But, um, you know, I'm kind of stepping, stepping in front of myself here because I would love for you to give an introduction of yourself to our audience. So, yeah, my name is Auden Utengen. Slightly difficult to pronounce last name. Uh, I was born and raised in Norway, so that's uh, that's my excuse there. My background was, uh, in a large degree, just music. I, I did a lot of classical music when I was young, uh, but eventually stumbled into a business school, uh, which I ended up in China for a year studying there, and where I met the, uh, an American girlfriend, and I moved over to the U.S., and uh, we become married, and so that worked out. And here, I, I basically adopted all her friends, and all of them were in healthcare. So that's how I ended up in this industry, which has been just wonderful, and I'm very grateful for that. So even though it's music and a little bit of business background, with Simpler, my main contribution for the longest time was basically engineering. Uh, I did a lot of coding and programming. I built the first version of our tool, Simpler Signals. But these days, I have people in an order of magnitude better than, than I am uh, at, at coding, uh, thinking of you, Curtis and Edison. So they take me to a completely other level. My co-founder, Tom Lee, and I, we started out, uh, it's over 10 years, and, 10 years ago at this point, with what eventually became Simpler. Um, and we just started out tracking these healthcare conversations. And, and we made a public project out of it, which is what you referenced to, the healthcare hashtag project. And then we started diving a little bit deeper into analysis. Our first type of clients was actually all academia, uh, various research institutions and uh, individual physicians. And we just did a lot of journal articles, a lot of research together with them. And at this point, I think we now count over 300 published journal articles either using or citing our data. That's how we actually learned everything we know is just through, through research. And then things evolved. Uh, we actually got government as a client, so NIH here in the U.S. and all the institutes under them, like National Cancer Institute and so on. And they started using our platform. Um, they're not researchers; they're more communication people, and so they're just using it to figure out. Well, they were having campaigns, either trying to communicate, disseminate information to the general public or to providers. And so they're using our tool to figure out, well, where is this conversation happening now? 
who are the main players and how can we craft our campaign to reach them. That use case forced us to actually re-engineer our product to, to become much more user-friendly and, uh, and more like towards uh, communications. And that, I think, worked out. <laughs> and now we have many more clients and, and more commercial clients as well. So, so a big deal these days is basically pharma and medical device uh, clients. My absolute favorite use cases among those, those groups are, are actually medical affairs. Uh, they just have some really, really cool use cases. They're like very, very into what are the physicians talking about regarding this clinical trial results or this new research that was just published. You know, will it change medicine, the way we practice? Uh, and so they use our tool to, to basically get early uh, insights into, into that. And then now, I would say even more recently, it's, it's more health systems. Certainly very interested in physicians. Um, both on recruiting and, uh, and retaining and supporting. And one thing that you found as it's evolving and growing, the, the research that you're looking at is a lot around social media. It really was summed up in an article that I recently found that uh, Simpler published on their website. It's around the fact that social media, as, you, as it stated in the article, it plays now a growing role with physicians in scholarship, education, information, dissemination, et cetera, a physician's social media presence really can have a significant impact on their career, right? This is so awesome to see because it, it took a while to get here. I remember your name from way, way back many years ago. And like, so you, you've seen this whole thing grow. In the early days, we were trying to get some physicians to adapt social media and, and Twitter, et cetera. And it, it was a hard hard uh you know challenge like why would i do that like why would i tweet my lunch a picture of my lunch or something like that that was sort of like the perception of social media these days it's it's just completely different what we're talking about in this article uh is first of all just make the make uh, the case that you know uh, this world has grown up and uh, matured significantly and uh, just one data point um, we looked at the ASCO annual meeting uh, last year in the summer. We compared uh, the physician activity during the meeting uh, on social media, which is Twitter in this case, uh, during the last five years. So year-over-year comparisons. And then from 2018 to 19, 41% increase in, in physician engagement and uh, just compared to the prior year. And that's, that was like staggering because I was kind of anticipating that you know, activity maybe level off just a little bit because if you look at Twitter in general, it's not really growing much, just a little bit. But for some reason, in healthcare, it's just a different Twitter world. Uh, it keeps growing and it's growing rapidly, and we see that especially on the physician side. We actually asked a lot of our physician friends, you know, hey, what do you think is the reason for this forty percent increase? They basically said that for for a long time now. Uh, the institutions that hire them, like uh, Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic, they're encouraging their physicians to actually uh, be on social media, especially active during the meetings. And so they, they have gotten a lot of institutional support, encouragement. So that's one reason. Uh, one of the bigger reasons that was repeated many times was that they kind of see this as um, like a watershed moment or you sort of you, you, they reach a critical mass. Like in the beginning, Physicians were so afraid of adopting social media and they were thinking about HIPAA and other <laughs> buzzwords like that. Uh, you know, they were afraid, you know, should I, this seems to be a risky thing. I better not do it. At this point, there's just enough 
critical mass of like known clinically, you know, clinically, uh, you know, KOLs who are using Twitter. And so it's, I feel safe adopting it as well. And so when, when enough people have, have done it, you feel safe doing it yourself. So I think that point has been reached among doctors. The third big deal uh, or reason for the growth cited basically the, the people who are now coming out of medical school, so the students, they've been students and they have been using Twitter while being a student. And now five years later, they're out of school and they're basically born on social media as a physician. And so their social media use is just much, much higher. And so that's why we're seeing this tremendous jump and probably to expect a continued growth. And I can understand the newer generation being digital natives or even Twitter natives, right? How they can adopt those tools. I, I'm really curious about this. The, the organizations, the health systems are encouraging physicians to have an active social presence. Now, what, what they're doing on social, though, it's not patient care, right? Are they using this to connect with their peers? What, are they, what, what kind of use cases are they using social media for? They're using Twitter primarily as a, as a professional tool. And so, yeah, they connect with the peers, the other doctors within the same medical specialty. Uh, the people who are active on Twitter say that Twitter becomes a filter and source for news, even like medical news. They're subscribers to, to traditional uh, journals, but you're not going to read all the journal articles. And so what you're ending up with is, oh, I'll read the journal articles that my other radiation oncologists are sharing on Twitter. And then sort of like Twitter becomes the filter. And also... Uh, on the side here, you, you have this really, really cool phenomenon called the Twitter journal clubs, where they take the old concept of a journal club, which is, I think, approximately 200 years old, and have moved it to Twitter so that when a new uh, publication is out, the actual journal is or orchestrating a Twitter chat uh, uh, that the physicians can, can engage and uh, participate in discussing the actual articles. And so we see physicians discussing the science uh, discussing, you know, from these articles. Just to add one more point to the, the Twitter journal clubs, um, we're now seeing, uh, and I, I'm going to be part of an article discussing this, there's actually going to be CME credits for physicians who participate on Twitter chats. So just a recognition of the level, the high quality of this medical education content that's being conversed. Uh, on Twitter. You know, that's really interesting because, uh, again, Auden, you and I recall, right, many years ago, Twitter was this Wild West. People weren't really considering it as an actual credible source uh, or, or medium to participate in. And now it's like the adoption now, CME credits associated with participating in a Twitter chat, that's mind boggling to me. That really has shown the advancement of how this tool is used. So these doctors, they, they do share a lot of science. They discuss science. Um, they're very, very high engagement during medical meetings like conferences. Um, and we see that just from volume of tweets. But also, if you pinpoint when did the physician create their Twitter account, it very frequently happens to be during a meeting because they're seeing all their peers sitting there on the Twitter machine and they also want to adopt that because it becomes a second channel, right, where they discuss what's being presented on stage. And then, of course, you have some of these physicians who are really, really cool, and they actually actively engage also with the general public or, more importantly, the patient advocates. We have those who, the physicians who are also participating in these more disease-focused communities 
um, which there are also our tweet chats for like breast cancer, social media, or, or lung cancer. And, and they are yeah, really awesome in the, that they, they're so in tune with the patient advocates. They're learning from the patient advocates because here are patients with a chronic illness who are sharing their experience. And they're saying things on Twitter that a patient normally maybe wouldn't say in a one-to-one doctor office setting. And so you have doctors saying things like, I learned things from patients on Twitter that I never learned from my own patients in my whole time practicing. And so, so you get a different perspective. And so for those physicians who are, who are willing to listen to those voices, this is so much to learn. Myself participating in Twitter for so many years, I do realize the value of the channel. Of course, you know, there is a lot of not valuable content that goes on in Twitter. But, uh, you know, as, as I use it over the years, I've become very good and adept at being able to filter content and actually have very focused conversations. It's, it's encouraging to hear that physicians are adopting to these tools as well in such a way. Now, I know that probably, Auden, a lot of people listening in maybe they work at a health system or maybe they're, they're a physician themselves, they're thinking, well, this sounds interesting, but what's the best way to get started? From your experience and your research, what are, what are some, some things that you could suggest to them, uh, ways that you know, they, could, they could get active in social as well as maybe even measure success from their social activity? I've been involved with Mayo Clinic since the summer. They, they reached out to us because they're working on a few things that's really interesting, one being... Uh, they're creating CME classes for basically how to become an academic influencer, uh, which is currently open to Mayo Clinic staff, but eventually become a global one. And I'm sure there will be CME classes open for, for everyone else shortly. But it's, it's basically teaching academics or all healthcare providers how to become influential on social media. The reason why they reach out to us is because we have a way to measure uh, how they improve. And so that's what we've been working on here. We have created an algorithm that attempts to measure impact, not necessarily influence, but impact a physician or anyone else have uh, in the world of healthcare social media as it pertains to the public social media platform. So together with Mayo Clinic and other organizations, we've been drafting this algorithm. It's called uh, the Healthcare Social Graph Score. It gives uh, an impact score that is earned. It's basically an early indicator of maybe how you may be ranked clinically later on, but it's earned, has nothing to do with followers, it's nothing to do with volume of tweets, but it's, it's basically how the content you produce is engaged with by other professionals in your medical specialty or in your disease area. And it works for anyone, even if you're a patient advocate and maybe you want a simple metric, which this, this healthcare social graph score is a score from zero to 100, 100 being best. Uh, so it's basically like cloud for, for healthcare, <laughs> uh, those, those who remember cloud back in the day. The point here is we want to arm people with a very simple way of proving or showing to all the work they put into social media. Um, because that's a question that we brought up in this article uh, that we wrote, and that, which the title being, does a physician's social media impact belong on their CV? Question mark. And uh, we argue it does because it's it's not just about tweeting the the trivial things, but a lot of physicians these days actually produce content, medical educational content, 
that is published exclusively on social media and not in a journal article. If a CV is supposed to reflect you as a professional or, or you as a professional person, you know, you want that to include also your social media impact uh, in order to provide the full picture of who you are. Having a simple score also be one of those metrics that goes on that CV is, is, uh, is one of our goals and aims with this uh, healthcare social graph score. I hear, the, I hear you mentioning impact, uh, and I'm thinking maybe the, the concept of influencers is going to be in the past, and in the future it'll be impactors on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think you're right. And I'm uh, glad you picked up on that because while influencer is a great word, it, it gets tainted a little bit. It's people who are influential, but who, who provides poor quality, you know, poor quality content, especially in healthcare. Impact is, is a much more what we're, we're, we're after here. And so, you know, on a traditional CV, you will have like your journal articles and uh, how many citations you received. And that's sort of a reflection of impact that that journal article had. And uh, wouldn't it be great if there was a sim- similar impact metric for, for some public social media activity? That's the aim aim for it. So do you think, though, that this impact score, is this something that will, as time goes on, and you know, I, and I imagine tools like Twitter and other social tools would become more and more commonplace in the practice of delivering medicine. Do you think that this is like an indicator now of, of a physician's role and in reputation in, in the industry as well as you know, with, their, with their patients? Do you think that's where it's going to lead to? Yes, absolutely. And uh, it may be early days right now to basically say or point to data, but eventually the data will be there to prove that exact point. The interesting thing with social media is that it's so fast, and so it will be an early indicator of things. Like citation metrics, which is sort of like the, the traditional way uh, of measuring you know, clinical impact or whatnot, it has such a long delay. You, you may publish an article, well, if you get it published, uh, you wrote it maybe a year or two uh, or years earlier than that. And then uh, the citations pour in, but there's a delay there like three, four, five years. And so it's, it's a lag. Um, and social media can be an early indicator of what's to come. And so that will be really cool. And we actually have Mayo Clinic doctors and researchers going to do that comparison with our score and how it actually correlates with scientific uh, citation scores later on. And the institutions have figured this out. So we work with Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, uh, and, uh, and I can also mention some other <laughs> health systems, but they now not only offer CME classes, how to become influential on social media, but they also use or want to use this score in order to recruit. Because when they're recruiting and hiring physicians, uh, they get a stack of CVs. And uh, wouldn't it be nice if they have a way to look up their social media impact? Because they now know that um, social media impact is reflecting positive on the physician and they as an institution. And so they want physicians who are impactful on social media. And we see other, other health systems use social media in a very proactive way. Like they decided here are uh, a dozen or two dozen medical specialties. We're going to analyze all the conversation, the physician conversation for each of those, and we're going to inject our voice, our voice um, in those and become sort of like a, a, a thought leader from an institutional point of view. And, but the whole reason for this 
is to attract and and uh, later on recruit physicians, especially those coming out from medical schools. So they these institutions are using social media as a way to recruit physicians uh, and get talent. Wow, the industry has changed so much in the last what is it nine or ten years that we've been involved in this. I cannot believe that we're actually having conversations like this about tools like Twitter and other social media. Whereas you know, I remember back right ten years ago, people were just running away from it, not knowing what to do. I'm sure we could talk a lot more about a lot of things, and we'll have to have you definitely back on to talk about some of the other research that you've done. And you mentioned uh, a blog post. We'll link to that in the show notes as well as. Uh, the beta link that you suggested. But for people listening in that want to learn a little bit more about you and uh, Simpler, what are good ways that they can reach out to you online? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter for sure. It will be at A-U-D-V-I-N. So that's basically a a Norse spelling of my name. Uh, And of course, you can reach me on my email, uh, A-U-D-U-N at Simpler.com. And for anything simpler, just go to simpler.com. And like you mentioned earlier, we have a lot of free tools. Uh, the Helker Hasher project, which is a great way to, um, if you're new on Twitter, just dive in there and look up your medical specialty or disease area, and you'll find some nice people to follow. Uh, so it's a great starting place. And then also you'll find a link to this uh, beta tool. To If you're interested in looking up your own score, you can just uh, log in with your account and get your score and you can see how it you know trends over time and see how you can how you can improve i have to say i might even go out there and do it for myself just to see i and i certainly hope that you know people listening in actually do follow that auden you are really great i love this interview and like i said i want to have you back on and talk a little bit more about some of the other research you did would you promise to come back i i I promise this has been awesome chris thanks so much for having me yeah well thank you That was uh, that was cool. You know, I, it's funny. Uh, Auden's great, and I've used uh, Simpler a lot over the years, tracking hashtags, and especially when you go to conferences to see the reach and the impact of uh, folks that are tweeting at that event. It's always uh, it's always really neat. Neat dashboards, great insights and data. So I appreciate him coming on the show. A couple of things before we get to recommendations. Again, the website touchpoint.health. We appreciate all the support. Uh, that you give the network, go out and say hi to a sponsor. We certainly appreciate that. And uh, let's talk about conferences. I know this is a little bit up in the air at this point. One that uh, actually has been a virtual conference all along is the uh, Mayo Clinic uh, partnering with uh, Shishmed, the Society for Healthcare uh, Strategy and Market Development, the, the arm of the AHA uh, conference, first part of June, June 2nd and 3rd. If you're planning on going to something that has been postponed or canceled, this would be a good one to sign up for. It's going to be virtual. Uh, there was always a plan for it to be virtual, and I'm sure we'll see more virtual conferences as we go. Uh, do want to throw this out there. If you're a vendor, if you're somebody that's um, you know interested in doing some some learning, uh, some virtual learning, we, we at TouchPoint have the mechanisms to help pull that off and would love to have a conversation about that. So uh, if we can help in some way, certainly reach out to Chris or I. And we can have those uh, conversations or at least put you in touch with the right people, maybe even just uh, be a convener, if you will. So lots coming up, lots in flux. I'm sure by the time this airs, a lot will have changed. Uh, So uh, hang in there. Uh, We'd love to connect with you online, certainly. 
uh, as we all kind of work remotely. So um, let's uh, let's turn our attention maybe to some recommendations. Yeah, I'll start, Reed, with a recommendation. And in this day of where we're trying to be very safe and being very secure, I'm going to recommend something kind of aligned with that, although not in the way that you're thinking about. A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine referred me to an app called Lockdown. Are you familiar with this app, Reed? Have you heard about this? No, no. Uh-uh. Lockdown is like a personal VPN or a personal blocker that you can actually install on your device. So it's a device level VPN that acts as a firewall and a secure tunnel to help you to prevent against like all the different types of data that's being shared without your knowledge to kind of limit that a little bit. He admittedly, and I'm not going to mention that my name is a little bit hypervigilant about making sure that his data doesn't get out to a lot of places. Mm-hmm. He turned me onto it. It's a free app again called Lockdown. You download it and you can set up a firewall right away on the block list is like clickbait, crypto mining, um, you can actually enable like Facebook apps from blocking, uh, you know, tracking on your device. And you can go through and you can actually create like even secure tunnels and secure ways to communicate. I just set it up just out of the, you know, out of the download right away, just set it up just to see. And here's what I'm tracking just for today alone, Reed. I haven't used my phone that much this morning. 857 times it's been blocked. This week alone, <laughs> more than 10,000 requests. Th- requests to things like Moat ads, to uh, double click ads, to um, you know various different ad networks that are out there. It's very interesting. These are things I didn't even know, and this is just through me in a very what I thought was a secure way of managing my own security and my own data. Um, I didn't realize it was being blocked. So here we go. So for those of you who might be interested and maybe want a little extra level security to prevent, you know, any kind of uh, additional, you know, tracking of your data, try the app Lockdown. It's totally free. You can just download it and set it up. It's really easy to learn. Well, there you go. Can never be too safe. So I'm going to recommend an app. Might have recommended this before. So if you can tell me what episode I recommended this in. I don't know. I'll send you something. It's called. It's an app. It's called uh, Guitar Tuna, like the fish, but it's it's a it's a guitar tuner app, right? So it's called Guitar Tuna, and it's pretty handy. Um, you know, I have it on my phone, and uh, I can pull it out when I pick up a guitar, make sure that everything's in tune, which is cool and handy. It's got a couple of things to it. You can obviously leave it on auto, and it auto detects which string you're you're plucking and and will you know help you tune that you can do kind of a manual where you pick the string uh you can it's got a, a place that you can tap and you can change from uh standard tuning to some other things like you know drop d or move down a step or whatever it is there's a couple of other things on the app there's a paid version of it as well that you can unlock but there's some other tools on here, like a metronome and a chord library. So if it's people that are campfire guitarists, kind of like I am, and, and you want to learn some new chords or you see something listed somewhere, you're not exactly sure what that means, uh, you can look it up in this chord library. There's also some games in here, kind of if you, if you want a self-progression. Uh, you can learn different chords. You can learn chord diagrams. There's a chord ear trainer. Uh, which is kind of interesting and and learn to play different chords. And so it's like little lessons almost. Uh, But anyway, I I predominantly just use it for the tuner, but it's, it's a well done app and it's, you know, there's a free version and of course you can, you can pay and there's uh, um, some other components to it. uh, Like I think where you can play along with some songs and stuff like that. But anyway, it's called guitar tuna. It's one of the better tuning apps that I have found at this, at this point. Very cool. I do remember you maybe 
suggesting that, but it's always a good one. I actually am a guitar player too, and so I downloaded it at the time, and I, it's a good one. I like it. Well, um, again, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. Uh, I know it's a crazy time and a busy time, and we appreciate the support uh, even in this. If there's something we can do for you, reach out. If there's a, a topic we should cover that's uh, maybe timely right now or would be helpful, uh, let us know that as well. Uh, as always, we appreciate and, and love doing this and, and just appreciate everybody's uh, willingness to continue to tune in. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.